Well, over the past uh, few weeks, we've been looking at Ephesians. We're going to be in Ephesians 6 today. I would encourage you to find that. We'll get there uh, shortly. Um, but as we've been talking through Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, uh, we, we started this sermon series back in the fall. Now we're continuing it. And, and part of what we're looking at now is, is making sure that we appropriately utilize all the gifts that God has given within the body of Christ. God has given them. We need to use them well. Um, and, and further, we need to recognize that God has given us the power to do his mission in the world. He's given us the mission. He's given us the ability to do it as the full body of Christ. So that's what we have in mind. And that's where we've been over the past uh, few weeks. Last week, we left it uh, in Ephesians 5, uh, 8 through 10 we were at. Um, that we need to walk in the way of the Lord, um, in the light of the Lord, it specifically says, and, and do things like allow Jesus to actually change you and transform you. Um, if you've never made that decision to be his disciple, that's the first step. You've got to do that. Uh, we talked about uh, allowing the church to shape you, because this isn't simply an exercise in individual personal piety, but being shaped as the body of Christ. Uh, you don't just say I'm a disciple of Christ and that's it. You join with his people when you say yes to Jesus. And so we need to allow the church to speak into the lives of one another to shape us into the mature body of Christ. And uh, we also talked if we're going to walk in the light of the Lord that we also need to model that for one another, what it means to follow Christ, to be his people. We further talked about, uh, the text talks about discerning or learning what pleases the Lord. That part of that is, is just the life of virtue, never to dismiss virtue, but always to hold on to virtue and, and make, embody that, basically, make that part of who you are. To test when people say this is what God, God's will is or this is who God is, to test that out and weigh it out. And part of how we do that is to actually know God and know God's word. So that's where we left it last week. The goal of all of this becoming the mature body of Christ. That's who we want to be as his people. And Paul, in his characteristic fashion, doesn't just use one analogy, he uses two uh, ways or metaphors, uh, and sometimes he'll mix metaphors. There are some great passages where he does that. Here, he at least kind of cleanly breaks between the two. He talks about body of Christ, and he talks about light and darkness. Uh, that is to say, we want to be light, we don't want to be darkness. So he's got those two things going on. So that leads us to the point that I want to work with this week as we proceed through Ephesians 6, which is, if you are light... God provides all you need to remain light and to defeat darkness. It's God's work, not our work, but we're involved in the fight. So let's go to Ephesians 6. We'll start with verses 10 through 12. I encourage you to follow along in a Bible, on your phone. If you're following on your phone, don't get distracted by Candy Crush or Facebook. Okay, <laughs> Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, Paul writes... Be strong in the Lord and in, his, and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Let's recall then... Paul's talked about light and dark, and, and he specifically said in Ephesians 5 that if you're not light in the Lord, you are darkness. He didn't say you're similar to darkness. He didn't say you're like darkness. He said you are darkness apart from the Lord. Now, you might think to yourself, 
surely you can do good without the Lord. It's not all darkness, right? It's not all doom and gloom. And I would say, yes, indeed, you can do good without God. God is the creator of all good. We're just not acknowledging God in that moment. But it is still good done in the dark if we're doing good without God. If you want to think about this uh, from God's perspective, let's do a mental exercise. Um, And so work with me here. How does God see our good even when we're living under the curse of sin? Okay, we're going to get political for a moment. Um, And this is nobody in particular I have in mind because I know we have a lot of political leanings and you probably don't know what mine are anyways. Okay, imagine to yourself mental exercise. You think of, we'll just use politicians to pick on them for a while. We can pick on anybody. Um, Think of a politician you dislike. They can do nothing right, right? You have them mentally in your head. How do you process when they do something that you agree with? How do you think when, when they do the one good thing and you're like, oh, okay, I actually agree with them on that. But we temper it usually, don't we? Yeah, but they're probably still a louse or whatever we want to say about them, right? When we do good living under the curse of sin, that's still how it's going to be viewed by God is under the curse of sin. Isaiah tells us that our, our good works are like filthy rags to the Lord unless we've been redeemed by the Lord. Unless we're released from that curse of sin. Good works don't save us. You could keep piling them on until you've done as many as you can possibly do, but we cannot tip the good enough to be saved. We cannot enact the light enough in our own light, our life without the light of the Lord. He's the one who powers it. Otherwise, we're just, as we said last week, a bulb that's in a socket doing nothing need to be light we need to stay in the lord up until that point we're just doing good in the darkness even if we're doing good so paul tells us in verse 12 he says for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers against the authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms and he tells us what you need to do because of that is put on the full armor of god why because of all this because there's a war on right now And you can see this quote that will come up here from Warren Wearsby. It says, Sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground, not a playground. And that he faces an enemy who is much stronger than he is, apart from the Lord. Paul is explaining to us why we would need to wear armor if we're disciples of Jesus Christ. Because we have an adversary. The devil is our adversary. And let's just point out, as I always do when I mention him, I preach Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. I preach the kingdom of God. We only mention the devil out of necessity. But as we mention him, let's just point out the obvious. He actually does exist. He is not co-equal with God. This is not yin and yang. This is not the force. Good and evil at, at the same level. He's finite. He's a derivative, perverting the good. He's not his own thing. Evil is not his own thing. It perverts the good. The devil is bound by space and by time and by knowledge. He can only know so much. He's not omniscient, omnipresent. um, um, What's the other one? I lost it already. You know what I mean. He's none of those omnis. He's not all-knowing. Neither am I. But 
further, why Paul would bring up these principalities and powers, these rulers, the authorities, the spiritual forces at work around us is that since he's bound by space and time, he wants to make us think he's bigger than he is. He also has an army of people working with him, of demons working with him. And they cannot simply be out in sort of that spiritual realm, but they do use some of the structures and some of the powers uh, within the human world in order to do their work. And they do things by deceit and by trickery within our world to make us believe uh, things that are just lies by their work within the world. So they make us believe things like, you know what, God is actually okay with your actions, even though... Everybody else seems to call it sin, even though it seems like it's bad, even though it seems like it, it's probably wrong, you're the exception to the rule because you're exceptional, right? That rule is for everybody else, not for you, of course. They work through deceit and trickery to tell us other lies, such as the good you do, yeah, that really will offset the bad. You know, you're not that bad of a person. And, and probably you either had to do it because what choice did you have, or it couldn't have been really that bad, the bad things that you did. The good clearly is better than the bad stuff you did. They tell us lies like virtue is not all it's cracked up to be, right? You've got to have fun sometimes. You can't have fun if you're simply virtuous. And they make us believe in lies like money really will bring happiness, that happiness really is the goal of life. It's not. That political action, and brothers and sisters, we buy into this too easily, that political action will in, is in fact our salvation, and that laws can really fix everything. Of course, we should be politically active. Of course, we, we can have money. Of course, we can be happy. But those are not salvation. But the lie is that they are. No, Paul tells us to put on the full armor of God because there's something going on around us. And we need to be prepared. Imagine to yourself, a uh, soldier uh, goes to basic training, enlists in the army, basic training, they go, they're deployed, they put on all uh, the appropriate gear to go out into theater, into battle, and they get out on the battlefield, and there are explosions, and there's live fire going around, and they run back to the commanding officer, crying, saying, I never knew they'd be shooting at me. Right? A soldier gears up for war, and what do they know they're going into? War. They know they're going to go into battle. They know there's going to be live fire that goes on in some situations. They put on the armor and they expect that something's going to happen when you do that. Now we have to recognize this morning that Jesus won the war. Any amens in the house for that? Jesus won the war. But we're still fighting the battle against the evil. There are still battles that rage on. The war's over. But the devil's trying to do all that he can to mess things up until the end. And so Paul tells us, put on that armor. Because there's a battle on. Ephesians 6, 13 through 17. Let's go there and see what he, what he encourages us to do then. Paul says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, 
I'm going to make Ashley's running slides this morning. I'm going to make Ashley work for it. I tell sound and, and uh, projector people, if you never get a compliment or a comment, you did your job right, right? You want to be kind of invisible. But uh, today you can compliment her because she's going to have to work for it. I'll buy the coffee, Ashley. Um, and if you're watching online now or later, uh, you can find these on the website later. But we'll have, let's, let's show the full armor of God if you could, Ashley. So here's an image. You can, you can faintly make it out, I'm sure. Uh, you can find this online later, but you can get an idea. We'll just take these piece by piece. We'll spend a little more time on some than others, uh, but we're going we're gonna to go through it fairly quickly uh, to move through. But when, uh, let's go to the belt of truth, if you could, Ashley. When we look at, at all of this, um, Paul is actually looking in two directions, as he often does in his allusions here. The, the outfit that you're seeing, the armor you're seeing, is really that of a Roman soldier. They lived in the Roman world in the New Testament period. But Paul is actually looking to the Old Testament as well. He's kind of got both weighed out. He's writing to Jew and Gentile, and you can kind of catch uh, that he's got a bit of an illusion in both directions. We heard some from Isaiah 59 this morning in one of our scripture readings uh, of uh, helmet and, and that sort of thing. So we've already heard some of that armor imagery. So he's looking in both directions. Uh, Paul here probably has a little bit of Isaiah 11 in mind as much as a Roman soldier to, to give the physical illustration of the belt of truth. Uh, in Isaiah 11, uh, the coming Messiah is described as one who's got the sash of, of righteousness and the belt of truth, or, or I think it's reversed. The, uh, anyways, you get the idea. The image is there of the coming Messiah. If we have the belt of truth on, what, what we recognize, the belt is the thing that actually holds everything together. So you put on the, the breastplate of righteousness and all these other parts, but the belt actually both has some protection. Some of you have loins in your actual translation. It has protection for the loins, uh, but it also holds things together so that your armor isn't flapping open. It also has a place to hold your sword. It's, it's crucial to hold everything together and to keep you able to go in. You're ready for action if you're wearing the belt, and it ties everything together. And it's the belt of truth specifically. Paul, as commentators point out, he didn't need to use the armor imagery. He could have just said truth and righteousness and, and all of those and salvation. But this kind of helps us give a visual image. The, the matter of truth is we need moorings. We need something that holds us together and holds us down. We need some objective reality in order to make sense of life in any way. When we lose any sense of objective reality, whether it's good and bad and right and wrong, things become actually meaningless. There's no meaning without some kind of a structure by which we can have meaning. And, and worse, when, when we think we're totally free without truth or making up our own truth as we sort of live in that world, uh, then whatever comes along next actually takes us captive by its truth. So we're not really living by our truth. We're living by the truth of whatever it is that comes along and captivates and captures us. And you can see that in the constant uh, push that we have for people trying to figure out, I just want to know who I am. I want to know my identity. Right? This is an example of how this plays out when we kind of have stepped back too far from truth. We end up starting to, to buy the lie of the truths that come in and try and identify us and try and define us too often. And, and what happens further is, as we try and find this new identity, well, people will say, I'm obsessed about this or I'm obsessed about that right now. And, and we'll always be obsessed about something new. And we'll always be trying to find something new and pinning our identity to something 
new if we've lost this sense of objective reality and of who God is, which is what that objective reality really is and the truth. And the problem is we, we've come to a point in our own society, you, you hear me talk about love and our poor definition of love all the time. Well, if, if I'm trying to find out who I am, and if I need to be affirmed all the time in whatever reality I've chosen at this particular time, then I need you to affirm that, and that's what we've determined as love right now. Love is the affirmation of who I am right now, of what I'm obsessed about right now, or what I've chosen right now. And if you love me, then you agree with me. And if you disagree with me, what do you do? You hate me. That's where we've left ourselves right now. And the problem is, when, when we're like that, we're, I've heard it described, we're, we're all sail and no anchor just floating away out in the wind. There's nothing holding us back. And some of us start to do this with God then. When, it, when we start, if we engage with Scripture at all, and we're challenged to become something different than who we are, we're not being affirmed in who we want to be. We're being called to holiness. And all of a sudden, that seems like a steep challenge. And it seems like God maybe doesn't love us because God's not affirming who we are. God maybe hates us. It's a problem. We have to have the belt of truth fastened on so we recognize what holiness is, so we recognize who God is, and we find our identity there in who God is. The belt of truth. The breastplate of righteousness is next. Uh, righteousness is the way of God, simply put. It, it's how you walk. It's, it's the way you walk as a disciple of Christ in paths of righteousness. Uh, and, and it only works if there's some sense of discipline. Again, the truth matters here. You have to have a pathway to actually walk to make sense of it. Paul gives some very concrete illustrations of how living righteously works in a family scenario. Um, just a little bit earlier than Ephesians 6, back in Ephesians 5, he talks about you know children obeying your parents. Of course, going back to the commandments. Obey your father and mother. Wives and husbands love one another, he talks about. And he even talks about what we would find more difficult to, to work with, slaves, obey your masters. And, and what he's saying there, when he gets to the slaves, that's a, a, an important point to stick on for a moment. He's not advocating for slavery, but he's saying, if you're in a position like this, this unjust position, your conduct will reveal the injustice of the situation. The way you act, the virtue by which you carry yourself, the paths of righteousness are going to reveal what needs to change, are going to actually level things out. As you can see, if you read the book of Philemon, you can see this working out in a more concrete fashion. But we know that injustice abounds in the world around us. It's all around us, and we can do a lot of good to change that injustice, but ultimately, if we're going to defeat the powers and principalities who continue to try and tip the scales of injust towards injustice. We need God's power working through us, and we need God's ways as our ways. We're not going to do it any other way. And we need to be the fullness of the body of Christ, looking around at the fullness of the body, both within and without those who are walking in paths of righteousness around the world, which is why, as we've talked about cultural intelligence, we've talked about Revelation 7, 9, and 10, that in the end, every tribe, language, tongue, and nation will stand before the throne, saying salvation belongs to our God. And we need to look around at our global brothers and sisters, especially who deal with this injustice all the time, in other parts of the world, who are held down, but yet, like the slaves obeying your masters, their conduct reveals the injustice of the situation. Their power comes from the Lord, not from any other source. 
so we need to be the same way when you put on the breastplate of righteousness. Next, it talks about shoes. That we need to have feet girded or feet ready with the gospel of peace. Now, there's a clear allusion here to Isaiah. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, again, hearkening to the one who's going to come, it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings and proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. I'm going to guess all of us have one or multiple of these people in our lives who when they walk into the room or into our space, whether they're family, friends, co-workers, uh, fellow students, teachers, whatever it is, you have to take a deep breath and say, oh boy, what's the crisis today? What's the, what's the problem now? They bring with them anxiety, right? You feel it. When I was a hospital chaplain for my short term as a hospital chaplain, I remember uh, uh, getting trained in that, and I remember making sure that they told us, bring calm with you in the room, bring peace. And the best way to do it is act like you're wading knee-deep in water when you walk in the room, which is really good advice. So you just slowly walk into the room and bring that sense of calm with you rather than hurry. Everybody's hurrying around in the hospital room. No, bring calm with you. We are supposed to be that kind of people. We're supposed to bring peace with us wherever it go wherever we go it should exude from us wisdom maturity those things should be felt from us because of we're walking in paths of righteousness because we're relying on the power of the lord because we have connected ourselves to the source of light we want to be the opposite of that anxiety person and be the people who bring peace and i want to commend us i think that last week's annual meeting was one that started with a sense of peace and carried it through. Anybody else feel that? That was nice. That's what we need to be. So have the feet ready for that. Then, here's an interesting one. The shield of faith. The shield Paul is probably referring to, uh, Roman shield, would have been leather on the outside, wooden frame, and uh, uh, it might have had some metal around the back or sides in some way to hold things together. But what you have in the shield like this is a pretty big uh, piece of armament. Um, It's both an offensive and a defensive weapon, the way that it was used. So he specifically says you need the shield of faith to stop the flaming arrows. Some of your translations have flaming darts. Um, I don't know which is better of uh, the evil one as they come. What are those flaming darts? Well, let's look at a comic first just for fun. This is from the far side. Uh, It's the, maybe I didn't put it on there. I'll tell you about it. Um, It's, I didn't, did I? Sorry, Ashley. That's my fault, not Ashley's. Slug family vacation. Uh, Anybody remember this from the far side? They all drive up in the car, the slugs, to the Great Salt Lake. And the dad says, let's go swimming. That's not going to end well. What are the flaming arrows, the flaming darts? Well, it's just like the slugs pulling up to water that looks inviting to jump into. Temptation is one of the flaming darts that shot at us. We may be tempted at many turns to walk away from the Lord, to do things that displease the Lord on many occasions. And, and, and some of those temptations are going to look actually like good things from the beginning. They're going to look virtuous or even like light. 
But we discover that when we walk into them, that light is actually a consuming fire. It'll burn us. One of the other flaming arrows that we should recognize that's closely related to temptation is oppression itself. That if the evil one is working and so are his minions working around, that there's going to be oppression if we're actually walking paths of righteousness, if we're actually doing right and connected and we're the light and we're bringing peace wherever we go, guess what? We're going to face trouble. That's going to, that's going to be a light, a light uh, reflecting in dark places that some people don't want illuminated in their lives. They won't want to face those things and we will face oppression as we do that. That's as a defensive weapon to take care of those flaming arrows. As an offensive weapon, interestingly, um, these shields for the Roman soldiers standing in a line, they could put them together, essentially, and march forward as a wall and literally mow over the enemy as they went forward. It was also an offensive weapon in that way. And so, too, the shield of faith can be that for us. Sometimes we're called to go in and mow down that injustice, take down the high places. One of my favorite monks, St. Anthony of Egypt, one of the most famous in the 300s AD, is quoted as saying, There's no need for us, the faithful, to fear the devil's manifestations. Temptations is really what he's talking about. Nor worry about his words, for he lies. He speaks no truth whatever. And like scorpions and snakes, he and his fellow demons have been put in a position to be trampled underfoot by us Christians. The evidence of this is that we now conduct our lives in opposition to him. When you conduct your life in opposition to the devil, and in a way that pleases the Lord, you will face oppression. The forces will push down on you. But we have the shield of faith. The shield of faith, we know what God has done in our lives. That's faith. And so we know that we can walk forward confidently in that faith, knowing that God will continue to act. When those flaming arrows come in, God will take care of us, like the shield. The last two that Paul kind of pastes together are the helmet of salvation. We heard that alluded to in Isaiah 59 this morning. And the helmet would have been both protective, of course, uh, but you see that nice plume on the top of this one. A helmet's also an identity marker. It says, when I put this on, I belong to the Lord's army in this case. I belong to Jesus Christ. I'm one of his. And so you put on the helmet, and, and it begs the question, whose are you? To whom do you belong? Are you, in fact, saved? Are you redeemed? And does your life reflect that reality? Is it worthy of the helmet that you're putting on? Paul, in Ephesians 5, uh, 15 through 16 he says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So you put that thing on, be prepared, be identified with the Lord and, and keep that shield of faith, keep the feet ready, keep all of that so that we can walk forward knowing that we're going to be challenged, knowing that things someday will be difficult, but we know who we belong to. We know who we fight for. We know who gives us the power and the armor, I should point out, to do this. And finally, Paul talks about the sword of the Spirit. Don't need to tell you what a sword does. Pretty sure you know that. Uh, when he talks about the sword, this is the only truly offensive weapon he references here. Um, and this is really uh, both the power of the Spirit working in us, but then specifically the good news going out from us uh, in an offensive way, not 
being mean offensive, but like sports offensive way. He probably doesn't mean the Bible specifically, like we sometimes use sword that way, but more broadly, the good news and the gospel lived out within our lives is really what he's addressing. So the question is, Paul tells us, put on the full armor of God this morning, brothers and sisters, those who may be far from God, those who are close to God, are you dressed for the battles ahead? That's the question Paul's asking us. And we already heard some truths this morning then about that. The, the main point is that if you're light, we're mixing metaphors like Paul does, then God provides all you need to remain light and defeat darkness. He's provided all of this. God provides all that we need for the battle ahead. He provides the armor. He provides the mission to go forward. He provides the, the power to actually use it. And we should point out then that our conduct in this battle... The way we conduct ourselves reveals our character. And our character should be that of Jesus Christ. And that's why I said the armor points in two different directions. Yeah, the, the illusion of the, the Roman soldiers, certainly. But it really does point to some of those Isaiah passages, Isaiah 12, 52, 59. Some of those would have obvious, been obvious to some of the hearers of this uh, in the background of the coming Messiah who's going to be dressed this way as well. And we're supposed to be like Christ. We're supposed to be dressed for battle just like Christ who came in and defeated the evil one. And now we go forward fighting with him as his people, as his disciples. And as his people, if you've chosen to follow Jesus Christ, then we need to recognize the enemy for who he is and what he does. We need to know that he exists, not get complacent in, in the, the battle. We need to reduce any complacency that we may have. And we need to increase the discipline so that we actually know how to go into battle, know how to use the power that's been given to us. We know who God is and who we are as His. We need to avoid temptation and we need to expect, and Jesus warned us of this, that opposition will be there and oppression will be there, that forces will war against us. We're in a battle. Jesus said, they're going to hate you because of me. But I've overcome the world. And we need to, as his people, continue to worship together. Continue to do ministry together using all the gifts God has given us as his armored army. That together we can trample down the devil and exalt the Lord. That's our job, church. That's who we are. We're armored for battle. And we're given the power. If you think of, just as a last image, King David in the Old Testament was called into battle many times. God called him in, but we're partners with this just like David was. God didn't sharpen his sword. He called him in. He said, I've called you to action. I've given you everything you need. The, the orders are there. Now put it together, church, and do my work. Let's pray. Father, may we be your people. And for those of us who feel far from you this morning, may we be drawn into your presence first and foremost. For those who are sitting here uh, listening and, and think, I've never made that choice to become your disciple, and yet this morning want to become your disciple. Father, may today be an easy choice. May they come into your fold. If that's you, just say yes to Jesus in this moment. I want to be in your army. I want to be one of yours, Father. For those of us who feel underprepared for the battle, we feel complacent, we feel underdressed, God, help us recognize as we look at, at what you've provided, what it is that we need. 
Help us understand what it means to wear the helmet of salvation and be yours for those of us who are striving and searching for who we are. And Father, for those of us who are having a hard time grasping on to what truth, your truth is, help us grasp on to that and be challenged to become like you because we know you. Help us grow to be your mature body, full, marching into battle, to take on the evil one, but most importantly, to glorify your name in all that we do. We pray this in your name. Amen.